and welcome to The Bookcase as spring begins. I am Kate Gibson. And I'm Charlie Gibson, her co-host, her father, and her general supporter. (laughs) But no longer. That was just in youth I was supporting her. (laughs) We have a book today that I think is fascinating. It is called Fever in the Heartland. It is to be released on April 4th. And the subtitle of the book is The Ku Klux Klan's Plot to Take Over America and the Woman Who Stopped Them. This is about a piece of history I didn't know anything about, and I don't think most people know anything about. In the 1920s, the Ku Klux Klan had a tremendous resurgence in this country, and not so much in the South, not as much in the South as in the North, which I didn't know anything about. And we were uncertain about this book because it is about the Klan. Who's going to want to read about the Klan, we thought. And then we got into the book and we found it compelling. And as I say, a piece of history that we didn't know. Yeah, I think in some ways, this book also talks about the fact that the Klan was rampant in the heartland. And frankly, we are not a country that loves talking about our dark past. And I think a lot of what happened in the 1920s was, in fact, you know, repressed. I have since learned that there were three basic waves of Klan popularity right after the Civil War, this period, the 1920s, the roaring 1920s, and then during civil rights. And I didn't know anything about this period. And I think this is one of those things where we read a nonfiction book and I'm like, ooh, I really should know more about this than I do, but I'm glad I'm reading this book right now. It is a fascinating book. I found myself thinking about how little I knew about the Midwest during this time. And I was thinking this was a time in history where the Great Migration was just beginning, which was a very dangerous period for African-Americans. Birth of a Nation had just been released. There were circumstances that made the Midwest ripe for the Klan. However, when I say that, I'm also really uncomfortable saying just that, because in a way it sounds like I'm making an excuse, like, of course, the heartland was going to fall prey to the Klan because of all of these extenuating circumstances, when really our dark history contributed quite a bit probably to it as well. Yeah, that's true. There was a tremendous strain of nativism in the 1920s. We always think of the 20s as the flappers of the jazz age and the Charleston dance. But this is another strain that was very prominent in America and particularly, particularly in Indiana, where it became the center of the Klan. But throughout the North, Ohio, Illinois, there were Klan sympathizing governors in Colorado, in Oregon. This story, written by Timothy Egan, who is, as I say, a terrific writer, all sorts of prizes, Pulitzer Prize, National Book Award finalist, I think. So it's a very readable book, and I couldn't put it down. But he talks about the fact that 40% of the membership of the Klan in the 1920s, and it had grown to millions of people, was in Ohio, Illinois, and particularly in Indiana. And this is the story of a charlatan, a vicious, sadistic charlatan who was also charismatic. David C. Stevenson, his name was. He came into Indiana and he sparked the growth of the Klan. And essentially, the Klan owned, owned the state of Indiana. They had the governor, all sorts of municipality mayors. He had a private police force of 30,000 members. Stevenson said, they can't get me. I am the law. I am the law. And he had senatorial aspirations and even presidential aspirations that people didn't think they were so far-fetched. This is an extraordinary story and how the Klan was eventually, at the end of that decade, brought to its knees. I think one of the things that's illustrated so well in the book, there's some really vivid pictures that really drove it home to me. But one of the most vivid was 
There's a jazz recording studio that was right in the middle of Indiana and great jazz musicians who were celebrated all across the country like Louis Armstrong. Louis Armstrong recorded his first album at that studio. And when he was done at the end of the day, he could not go out at night Mm. as Louis Armstrong. And I think that's an incredibly vivid way of describing the Midwest at that time. So it is a fascinating book. And D.C. Stevenson, David C. Stevenson, was brought down because of his own viciousness. The Klan essentially self-destructed. People may say, well, I I don't want to read a book about the Klan, but this is very interesting. It is the Klan presenting itself in a different way, trying to project to people that it was not a terrorist organization so much as an organization that certainly believed in white supremacy and was certainly opposed to immigrants, to Jews, to Catholics, to blacks. But it grew because it presented itself in a more benign way. And it's a tragic story in many respects. And then one woman, one woman, according to Tim, brought them down and brought them down because Stevenson turned out to be such a vicious, sadistic rapist and eventually convicted of murder. Give it a listen. Listen to Timothy Egan and what is a fascinating story about the Ku Klux Klan in the North in the 1920s. Timothy Egan, it is good to have you in the bookcase. We really appreciate your joining us. The book is Fever in the Heartland. And I think this is history unknown to most of us. I think most listeners think of the Klan as a fringe terrorist group located primarily in the South. But the extent of the Klan membership 50 years after the Civil War and in the North absolutely amazed me. What brought you to this subject and how did you approach it? So it was largely unknown to me as well. I consider myself you know, fairly well informed and as a historian, I thought I knew you know, most episodes of American history. And my image of the Klan was post-Civil War Reconstruction when they rose out of the ashes of Civil War. And it was a terror group founded by mostly ex-Confederates. And it was a reaction to the fact that 36% of the adults living in the American South had been enslaved and were now full citizens. It was just a reaction to having these people walk among them, have citizenship. So they had a reign of terror. General Grant absolutely crushed them. He doesn't get enough credit for this as president. The Grant, you know, so the shorthand version of Grant is that there was corruption in the railroads and this and that. I'm glad there was a great biography of him written, forget by whom, but some years ago that resurrected his image. He called him the most abominable scourge that America has ever seen. And he crushed him. He crushed him, put him in jail, passed these Klan laws, declared martial law, et cetera. They were done. They were done by 1872. Then how do they reappear 50 years later? That was the thing that blew me away. And it led me to the center of the United States, Indiana, where one in three white males took an oath to the Ku Klux Klan in the 1920s, one in three. And they penetrated all parts of society. They had the Ku Klux kitties. They dress up little kids in robes and hoods and put them in parades, waving signs. They had a women's auxiliary and they totally ran the state led by this one charismatic con man. So I was just intrigued, Charlie, as any storyteller, any journalist, any historian is about being able to tell something that is largely unknown. And it was an incredible story because it's built around one person who's sort of the music man, this guy shows up in Gary, Indiana and starts, you know, deceiving everyone. And then the entire state goes over to the dark side. 
Well, now that you've sort of you talk about it, that a lot of people don't know how much it took root in the heartland. What was it about Indiana and the heartland in this time period that made it so ripe? Great question, Kate. So let me just give you a perspective on how big the Klan was in the 20s. Okay, six million members up to six million members took the oath. And in the oath, you know, you put your hand on the Bible. And I quote the oath in the book, and you swear to forever, forever uphold white supremacy. Six million Klansmen, six million. Seventy-five members of Congress were considered to be in the Klan's side. They did whatever they said. At least four, four United States senators took the oath itself, and as many as 15 were loyal to the Klan. They had Klan governors in Oregon, in Colorado, and in Indiana. Now, so what is it about Indiana? It was at the time the most heterogeneous state in the United States. It was white Protestants. What was going on in the 1920s? A huge amount of change. Immigration, Jews coming from Eastern Europe, fleeing pogroms in what is now the Ukraine and Russia. Immigration, not from the north of Europe, but from the south. Sicily alone, 800,000 people fled Sicily in a 20-year period, primarily because of an earthquake that destroyed their homes and made them impoverished. So they were darker skinned. They were Catholic immigrants, and they didn't look like the Nordic stock. And then there were Jews. So all of this change. On top of that is one more thing. You had 200,000 African-Americans served in the Great War, World War I. They went to Europe and fought for their country. When they came home, what did they find? They couldn't be citizens. There were Jim Crow laws across the land. These soldiers who served their country so mightily. So it was a reaction to these soldiers wanting to be full citizens is changing. And so you have a state that, that is the most average of them all that reacts most strongly to them. Hmm. Yes, you, you say they had the largest concentration of Klan members per capita than any other state in the nation. And that blew me away. One in three. One in three white males. And yet this is a state that lost 25,000 citizens in the Civil War fighting the Confederacy. Isn't that amazing? And yet the Klan is there. And as you mentioned, in Ohio, nearby, and in Illinois as well. And yet you pin it on one man, one man who came to this state just four years previous, who was a charlatan who was a vicious sadist and a complete fake, and he largely was responsible for this kind of growth of the Klan in Indiana? He despised his family, just totally erased his background. And in four years, four years' time, what rose from a drifter who floats into town with quick wit and a charismatic presence to owning the state, absolutely owning the governor answers to him, and he's his governor. A majority of all members of the state legislature are Klansmen. He's the grand dragon of the state. How did he do it? Well, it was a combination of things. He said things that people wanted to hear. He played on their fears of these new immigrants. Now, there was a lot of eugenics going on at this time, too. Indiana was the first state in the nation to pass a eugenics law where they would forcefully sterilize these so-called undesirables. In some cases, they were gays. They were immigrants. They were, you know, women who were unmarried, but having sex. As you write in the book, this is not a period of history that Indiana is like, yay, let's talk about this. So <laughs> yeah, I'm interested as to what your research process was right. like. And did you, yeah. did you have those walls put in, put, mm -hmm. put in your way? Yeah. I had to spend the whole pandemic reliving the 1920s in the Ku Klux Klan. <laughs> Believe me, I would have, there's other places I would have rather been. Indiana has done a fairly good job to answer your question of keeping records of this dark period. I mean, the newspapers were all over it. They, some of the, the editors were Klansmen, but they were all over it. I mean, they had front page headlines begging the people just before the election, don't turn us into a Klan state. I mean, that was the Indianapolis Times. That was a banner headline. And then they they voted overwhelmingly for the Klan slate. The paper came out and said, we are now a Klan republic. So, I mean, it's, the historical record is there. 
it's not like you had to dig very far. And Indiana, to its credit, has done a remarkable job of preserving it in the archives. But people don't want to talk about it. It's amazing that the KKK was chartered by the state. That's amazing to me. Right. They had 30,000 men legally deputized by the state as a private police force. How could all these folks not know the kind of terrorist organization they were joining? Or did they know? That's the crucial distinction. I argue that they knew. And again, they had all these parades and they had these ministers would bless the Klan. And, you know, they would, from the pulpit, they would connect it to evangelical Christianity. All these good people would validate the Klan. And your question is, how did they not know? Of course they knew when they put their hand on the Bible. Again, I quote the oath in there several times, what they were taking an oath to. The larger question is, do they know that the Klan still dealt in terror? That behind this Mayberry facade, they still ran people out of town. They still put hot iron brandings on people's head. There's a lynching. That's a coda in this book. That's a terrible story. It's sort of the coda to the Klan era in Marion, Indiana, considered the last known lynching in the United States history in the North. They all took pictures, selfies of themselves, these average folks, next to these corpses hanging from trees in Marion, Indiana. So I, I think to your question, they knew what they were taking an oath to. Yeah, they knew what they were doing. And it was more of a self-validating thing to be a part of it. We've talked a lot about Klan and the local influence, but I want to talk a little bit too about the Klan nationally. Yeah. And if you would talk a little bit about the National Origins Act of 1924, because it surprised me how much of a role the Klan played in a law that I knew was egregious, but I just wasn't, I I didn't know who some of the true authors were. Right. So that was the Klan's biggest goal. It was their number one priority in the 1920s was to close the door against the people they didn't like. And again, it made no secret of it. It was mainly Jews from Eastern Europe and Catholics. There weren't a lot of people coming from Africa. There weren't, Asians were already excluded. So mainly it was directed at Jews and Catholics from the South. That was their number one goal. The National Origins Act was an attempt to right the future face of America, to say America should look like what America looked like in 1890. That's what they wrote it back to. The the Origins Act, that's why I call it the Origins Act. It went back 30 years and said, we want the face of America to look like this. So they put a quota system in. It essentially eliminated immigration by Jews and Southern Europeans. It accomplished their goal. And it was on the books, Kate, for more than 40 years. And he said, you could just cite thousands and thousands of people who were slaughtered by Hitler in the Holocaust who otherwise would have come to America. Is that our fault? No, of course not. That's Hitler's fault. But it just, you know, you look at the dominoes of history and wonder what would have happened had some of these people been allowed to come to our country. The other thing, and this I didn't know going in either, the Klan's other, so they had three goals. One was to restrict immigration. They passed that. That was their peak in 1924 with their influence in Congress. Prohibition was their number one thing before that. They were hand in glove with the Evangelical Anti-Saloon League, as it was called, to outlaw alcohol in every square foot of America. While the leader of the Klan, the Grand Dragon, is a bootlegger, a raging alcoholic, and a man who basically controls the liquor side of it. So yeah, the second thing is prohibition. That was their, their other big goal. And then the third thing they'd already accomplished in the South, and they were now trying to do it in the North, as you saw in India, which was Jim Crow. Separate the races forever. So we've talked about David Stevenson, the man who was charismatic, vicious, sadistic, a white supremacist, who basically, because of his charisma, was able to grow the Klan in Indiana. And you say in the subtitle of your book, and the woman who stopped them, 
Tell me about her and how that came about. I'm always interested in the people who exist on the margins of history. There's plenty of people going to write about Churchill and Lincoln and Grant and all the the so-called great men who move history. I'm always interested in how some one or two lone individuals who generally get written out of the story can greatly affect the story. And this is what thrilled me. This is one of those cases. Here's who tried to bring down the Klan. Patrick O'Donnell's National Unity League, which was huge at one point, and he couldn't bring them down. The major Jewish organizations tried and united. They couldn't bring them down. The NAACP came to Indiana several times and tried to organize against them. They couldn't bring them down. Time magazine put the Imperial Wizard of the Klan on their cover after the GOP convention of 1924, and they called it the Cleveland with a K convention. The Klan controlled both the conventions. So they were at their mightiest at their mightiest in 1925. And this one woman brought him down. What happened was she was a former school teacher. She was a state employee. She lived about six blocks from where D.C. Stevenson, the Grand Dragon, lived. And she needed some help because she was going to lose her state job. And Stevenson controlled the state. She was in a lending library. So that started a series of things that set her in motion. So she came into Stevenson's orbit. And then he commits a horrible crime, a horrible crime against her. I don't really want to go into the details because I want to keep some of it suspense, but it's an awful thing. And I sort of saw this as his personal immorality mirrored the larger immorality of the Klan. Like you had one Mm. man that sort of embodied in his awfulness. He was truly an awful man. You know, he was a rapist, a sadist, a drunk, a con man, a fraud, all those things you said. But she brings him down because her words in this trial that happened in Noblesville, her words of this one woman. So he, the quote that everyone remembers, it was headlines all over Indiana, was when Stevenson said, they can't bring me down. Why? I am the law. I am the law. He said he was above the law, that no civil court, he controlled the courts, he controlled judges, but she brings him down and it's her words beyond the grave. She was brave enough, lying mortally wounded after he'd attacked her to say, I will let my words be used in court. And that's, it's a wonderful story in that sense that one woman was able to make this change. Now, her name was Madge Overholzer, and you, you say the country owes her a debt of gratitude. It really does. It's really interesting to me, though, because to me, it was a double-edged sword that she was the one who brought them down because you want the story to be. And then one day, Indiana woke up and realized that, you know, that, you know the country woke up and realized that the KKK was outdated and was against everything this country stood for. But it wasn't. It was a scandal that brought it down. So for me, it was a, it was a great story, but it was also, you know, not, it doesn't let us as a country off the hook. It doesn't let us off the hook. You know, I'm sorry to bring that up because I would have preferred too that you know Indiana came to its senses. And there are lots of I don't want to characterize the state as all one way. There are lots of good, brave voices. There was a crusading newspaper man named George Dale who was thrown in jail for challenging the Klan. He kept saying, These people are horrible. What kind of Hoosier would dress up in his mama's nightgown and parade around at night? He used to say, you know, he was just he's just relentless. You know, and they beat the hell out of him. They, he was a little five foot two guy. And I would prefer as a storyteller to just say, and one day they woke up and said, this stuff is awful and horrible and un-American. No, it took a little more than that. What is it you hope readers take away from this book? Yeah, it's sort of twofold. And again, this is hard to say, but I'm just going to say it. 
there's a dark side of our history. It's a, I keep thinking of a vein, like a vein of coal or a vein of, that runs underground. And it runs from the very dawn of American history. It doesn't mean it's our history. It doesn't mean it defines us. One of the things readers have to realize is that we constantly have to beware of this dark side, this hatred and fear of others. America is often said is the only country in the world built on an idea. We're not built on a tribe. We're not built on ethno-nationalism. We're not all German or Irish or Nordic or African or anything. We're built on this idea. And it's a very, it's a very fragile thing. And every now and then it gets broken. And this is one of those times where a, a skilled charlatan came along and you thought this democracy was stable and you thought this American idea was stable and he showed it could be broken. So I think we have to recognize we have that side. But also, this is the important takeaway point too. That good people do prevail. In the case of this book, it's one woman who changes history. That's where I take issue with people who say, oh, we're all one way. We're, we're awful people. We're racist or this or that. I just don't buy that. I say we have that vein going through us. But every now and then, you know, our better angels are on the run and they're in retreat and they're hiding. And every now and then they win. And this is the case. I think they sort of won in one sense. Timothy Egan, thank you for coming with us. The book is... Fever in the Heartland comes out April 4th. The book, The 1920s in the North, The Klan's So Strong, as you say in your acknowledgments, the era was known for cultural exuberance, flappers and jazz, but also a time when millions of people, even in the North, took an oath to hate their fellow citizens. We appreciate your being with us. Thanks. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. It's my pleasure. I appreciate it as well. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. As in previous campaigns, it's the economy, stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. First, though, it's the news, stupid. It is the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid. In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from? And does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts. Timothy Egan, Rapid Fire. What's the historic book you still have to write? Well, I'm a Westerner and I like writing about the West. I want to write a story of water in the West. Right now, it's the story. Of course, it's the opposite. Three months ago, it was the drought. Now it's they can't get, they have too much. The book that made you want to become a journalist. I'll still go back to the book my mother actually handed me. We had seven kids in our family, one after the other, you know, Irish Catholic rhythm method family. <laughs> My brother was, <laughs> as my dad said, my dad said, I used the I got rhythm method. 
<laughs> my mother was a great lover of books and history. And I think her one regret was she didn't finish college. And so she, you know, taught us all to love the written word and storytelling. She handed me, you know, Huck Finn when I was a kid. And I couldn't, I, I would just, I absolutely loved it. It didn't necessarily necessarily want me to become a journalist. It made me want to become a storyteller. What were your high school grades in college as well, in English and in history? Not that good. <laughs> I loved, <laughs> I loved all those subjects. Um, I absolutely loved all those subjects, but I was too much of a knucklehead. You know, I fooled around a lot and <laughs> I, I had the John Belushi method of college, seven years of college down the drain. You know, it, it took me a long time to um, establish my major and this and that. So I love all those topics. I just couldn't settle down. An author you will read if he or she wrote it? Well, unfortunately, she just died and I just revered her. It's Joan Didion. I just revere her. I mean, I, she's one of these writers where you stop and read the sentence again. I just absolutely revere her stuff. I read everything with her name on it. If I weren't a journalist, I would be. So this is going to sound off the wall. You know, of course, my mom wanted one of us to be a priest. That wasn't going to happen. But I, for a long time, wanted to be a comedian. <laughs> and I did this stand-up comedy show at the at the tri-school, you know, competition, our boys' school and the two Catholic girls' schools. And I won first place. And it made me think, unfortunately, that I could be a comedian. That led to... That was one of the reasons why I spent seven years in college. So, you know, you get a laugh once and you think, you know, <laughs> I could be a comedian. It's hard. Comedy is hard. <laughs> it is. It, it really is. It's a question we find illustrative in five words. In five words, what would you like the rest of your life to be? Joyful, consequential, close to nature. That's five. So, Kate, what strikes you about what Timothy Egan had to say? I think what's interesting to me or what I take from the book, and it's really sort of the bittersweet ending of the book. On the one hand, it's a happy ending. Madge Oberholzer brings down the clan. On the other hand, it isn't like the Klan's second wave ended because the Midwest looked in the mirror and said, you know what, this is wrong. And we just fought a whole war about how wrong this is and we need to stop. It was an organization that was brought down by scandal. And I think that's something that stays with me long after the book is finished, is what are we still learning from that? With apologies to Tim Egan, my only concern about the book is maybe he overstates the role of Madge Oberholzer in bringing down the Klan. But I have gone back now and read a lot about the Klan in the 1920s. And certainly she was the beginning. And then people began to look at other Klan leaders around the country and found them to be child abusers and totally acting in ways that were antithetical to what the Klan claimed to be. So she started it for sure. Stealing people's booze to drink it, I think is a perfect, is very illustrative of that. But still the amazing part to me, Indiana lost 25,000 sons to fighting the Confederacy and then the Klan grows in Indiana. Secondly, I thought Tim's answer to the question about did people know they had the largest Klan organization mm. in the country in Indiana. Mm. Did people know what mm. they were joining? And he said they had to know. And that's mm is highly disturbing to me. The idea, too, that the newspapers would publish the membership lists and people would, instead of going, oh, my gosh, look at all these people, they would go, oh, good, you know, my, my store owner, my whatever, my friend is a member, I should join up, too. That that was the effect of publishing the roles is 
is disturbing as well. Yeah. It's a fascinating piece of history. It's a fascinating book. Don't be put off by the fact that it that it is a story of the Ku Klux Klan. Once again, the name of the book is Fever in the Heartland. Timothy Egan is the author, and it comes out April 4th. So you can pre-order it if you're listening just when this podcast comes out, or as I say, after April 4th, it'll be available in bookstores. I recommend it. I really do. It's worth a read. Yes. As I say, when I first learned of the subject of the book, I was hesitant. And then when I read it, I found it tremendously compelling. Anyway, Timothy Egan, Fever in the Heartland. We want to make you aware of the people who uh, make this podcast possible other than Kate and me. And also, uh, we want the coda at the end from Timothy Egan. And uh, we asked him to do that. And he gave us a quote from Oscar Wilde. Good to have you with us. Take care. The Book Case with Kate and Charlie Gibson is a production of ABC Audio. It's produced by David Canada in conjunction with Surecam Productions. Brenda Salinas-Baker is our senior producer and Laura Mayer is our executive producer. We give special thanks to Josh Cohen, Elizabeth Russo, Nania McLean, and Cameron Chertavian. He has a great quote where he said, the one duty we owe to history is to rewrite it. Now, that doesn't mean you rewrite it in a bad way, but you, you know, history is always written from the victors. History is always written as a story. But the, I took that to mean we have to rewrite it to be closer to the truth. And I think that's what I tried to do with this book on the 1920s, because one story got out that it was all flappers and bathtub gin. And it was that. But that it was also another really big story coming. And that was one of my inspirations, Oscar Wilde. As in previous campaigns, it's the economy, stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. First, though, it's the news, stupid. It is the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid. In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts.